Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about insane inmates and non-traditional tales. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Alan McDaniels and Elliot Olson are voice talents Danielle Hewitt, Drew Blood, Trevor Rines, Melissa Medina, Nick Goroff, and myself. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our Theater of the Minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. 
Our first tale of the evening is written by Alan McDaniels and is performed by Danielle Hewitt, Drew Blood, Trevor Rines, Melissa Medina, Nick Goroff, and myself. Alice Grimm is a young woman who works for Oakwood Correctional Center. Three years of being burned out has left her with a poor outlook on her job. She believes she has seen and suffered the worst already. But as she makes her way into work one day, she learns just how hellish things at Oakwood can get. So without further ado, I present to you The Transfer. Sweet dreams of childish delusions are shattered like glass by the ear-piercing cry of my alarm clock. I hate my job. Sitting up in my bed, my blurry eyes struggle to adjust as I slam my fist onto my poor alarm clock. It was only doing a job, but I hated it for it. Out of bed and into the shower, trying to gear up for whatever chaos intertwined with the false pride of a career lay before me. Nice hot water. If I'm not careful, I'll stay too long and be late. It's happened. Putting aside any notion of remaining in my miserable, beat-down, overpriced apartment, I finish up, exit the shower, get dressed, and brush my teeth. I brush my long black hair and put it in a ponytail behind me, making sure not to touch the collar, or the sergeants will chew me out like gum. Name tag straight, boots polished, nails trimmed to fit policy. All that's left to do is give up the thoughts of a good day and go to work. My name is Alice Grimm, but I must constantly argue that fact, because both inmates and co-workers will sneak in a lash and say grime. I shouldn't have to explain why that bothers me more than my job. In case you're still caught on the fact that I said inmates, yes, that's right. I'm a corrections officer. Don't ask me why. I signed up for a bonus back when I needed money, and had foolish notions of impressing guys. Thought a girl in uniform would leave them starstruck. Yeah. No. If anything, it made them more intolerable. The pickup lines, the hopes for some inappropriate use of my uniform and cuffs. I used the bonus to get an apartment that was more run down than the prison I work for. With mildew-covered, chipped painted walls, lights that flicker with an ominous tone that practically whispers, you'll never leave. I'm an idiot. Hey, at least my car's nice, though. That's right, boys. Miss Grimm drives a cherry red Mustang to work. My hopes, my dreams, and my true love. I've been working at Oakwood Correctional Center for, now that I think about it, a little over three years. I suppose that doesn't sound like much to most. But to me, what am I doing? As I said, I only really started because I wanted the money and, well, to be honest, with four brothers who all act like grade A, well, let's just say they can be barbaric. I wanted to prove I was no runt. I could handle my own. And like I mentioned before, a girl in uniform should be praised. Instead, I got a bonus that ran out in a week, with now a five-year contract. In short, I sold my soul. I leave my apartment and find my car. I check my watch to see I'm 15 minutes behind schedule. No big deal. I'll make it up. No problem. As I started up and head out of the parking lot, I hear the sky crack wide with anger as rain falls destructively down. Great. Even the gods are against me today. No sun. 
It'll be another two hours before I'm graced with light. Instead, my headlights will shine through this mess and guide me. Well, I hate to say it, but home. The roads are a mess. I'm practically swerving left and right as I come around a sharp corner. Lightning flashes with the sound of thunder breaking free from the sky above. A large branch falls from the towering trees right in my path. I cut it close and I feel my heart nearly leap from my chest. Jerking the wheel, I escape it and slowly press the brake giving myself a chance to breathe. Looking back, I can see a cluster of large branches, practically a tree itself, now blocking the road behind me. That is just another reason I should have stayed in bed. I drive on, more cautious than the road racer now. And within 20 minutes, I reach the dead-end road that leads to Oakwood. Every time I see the long, depressing road, I always think of the saying I heard in some horror movie. Abandon hope, all who enter here. Even though it's referring to hell and is a twisted way to look at my job, I like it. And it brings an ironic grin to my face each time. As I make the turn and start back down the road, I notice a tall, slim man wearing an all-black suit. He had snow-white hair combed back with a pair of sad brown eyes. I would have considered pulling over and asking him if he were okay. Still, today I was already running late for work, and whatever godforsaken reason he had to be out in this late in the middle of the storm was his business and his alone. I pulled into the parking lot, gathered what I needed for my no-doubt ghoulish day, and ran inside. As I made it to the front doors, something compelled me to look back. As I glanced over my shoulder, I saw the same man standing in the parking lot next to my car. I went to yell at him and ask him what he was doing by my car, when he looked over at me as if he could read my thoughts. His sad brown eyes studied me with curiosity. I felt a shiver in my spine. And while something pushed at me to walk over and confront him, something deeper and more primal inside of me pulled for me to walk away from this specter of a man. I retreat inside and go through the checkpoints. No one says anything to me about being late. No one cares to notice my presence, even on a good day. All of us are just floating through an existence of shackles in the form of a badge and a paycheck. Oakwood wasn't the worst place to find yourself working. Other places had far worse reputations. Still, it was a prison that housed convicts of all sorts. We kept a low profile. No heavy hitters, so to speak, stayed here. We still get fights, stabbings, and, well, people who decide they've had enough and found their way to, shall I say, finish their sentence. It was a prison nonetheless, and we were all inmates of our own accord. Of course, Oakwood was one of the darker places to be back in the day. It was one of only three in the surrounding states to have a death row, and had an estimated count of over 200 inmates who were put to death by electrocution. Nowadays, death row has been shut down and repurposed with only stories left behind. Not only did we have that, but we also housed some of the most aggressive inmates at one point. Countless stories of staff being assaulted in various ways, some jumped, some sexual in nature, and some just straight up stabbed. One of the most notorious inmates that walked the pods ages ago, Kane. The stories vary depending on who tells them, but the overall vibe stays the same. He was a tall, harsh man who had been locked up for butchering entire families. He was to be put on death row, but after various stabbings on inmates and staff, he had an accident before they could put him to death. 
Some say it was other inmates who took him out. But the brutal reality was that after he stabbed a captain and was placed in full restraints, he suffered an accident. He was being escorted to the hole when, mysteriously, he fell down the steps. His body showed several broken bones and a cracked skull. He also suffered internal bleeding. They say it was an accident, but if you ask me, I think the staff all had a go at him as payback. The prison was a hellish place back in the day. And while it's still no party, even our worst days pale compared to how it once was. The sergeants, lieutenants, and captains were already gone doing their own thing when I reached the watch office. I checked myself in, found where I was to be on this glorious gloomy day, and headed to my post. Today I was assigned to building 700, or 7 building. It was on the far outskirts of the prison and housed the old timers. Once you've reached a certain age locked up and were not a viable threat in the system's eyes, you were given a chance to stay in 7 buildings. It was laid back as far as the prison goes, and they were given a few more freedoms than most. Still, eyes forward and be ready because even here in seven buildings, we have had incidents. I entered the booth where Mrs. Pleasant sat back in the chair, going over paperwork. I've worked with her before. Even though she was as sweet as sugar, she hated to be disturbed when she worked. I grabbed my radio and went out to monitor the pod, ready for my 12 hours to be over, letting another person volunteer for this hell of an occupation. The first couple of hours went by as normal. No one spoke to me. Just shuffled about their day heading to chow or medical. It was almost noon when an inmate approached me. With a mostly bald scalp, white hair poking from the sides, a long white beard, and an old beat-down face with a few small scars scattered about it. His clothes were pressed neatly, and even with his age, he carried himself with a sense of pride, walking with his back straight. Shame to see you here he said, giving me a sincere look of remorse. I smirk and nodded. Well, gotta pay the bills. I shrug. I get this kind of thing a lot. Being a young female, I've been offered several times to let one of these inmates be my sugar daddy. As if they could pay for anything. They pinch pennies, mopping the floors to buy food from the commissary. Only fools fall for such games. He stopped and looked at me, confused for a second. Bill's been paid. He spoke. I raised a brow but brushed it aside. He was old and probably prone to ramblings. Off to medical? I asked, trying to change the subject. He smiled, giving me a slight smirk. I doubt it. Hopefully I'm made right by the man upstairs, and this walk will be my last. We'll see shortly. He sighed. Whenever an inmate speaks slightly of death, I worry. You never know when someone might clock out on you. It has happened several times since I started and I've had to wheel bodies out before. Not a pleasant sight, and it does terrible things to your dreams. There are some things that not even tequila can fix. Before I can question him further to ensure his mental state is okay, I hear panic erupt in the pod. Someone is shouting a code for a medical emergency. I look over to see two officers standing outside a cell tucked away in the corner. I jumped into action and ran over to assist them. Regardless of how they did it or where I was, they needed me and I was sure enough to stand by them. My brain was trying to figure out how they got past me without my knowing, but I know that after several long shifts of working, you get burnt out and miss some of the most obvious things. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs 
or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I reached the cell as one of the two officers stepped inside. The two talking amongst themselves. He breathing? The one outside the door asked. I looked over at the one inside as he examined a body in the bed. He reached over and pressed two fingers to the man's neck before looking back at us. Cold as ice. He's gone, he replied. I stepped back in shock. No matter how often I see death, it's not something you can prepare yourself for forever, let alone get used to. The loud sound of heavy footsteps echoed from the entrance to the pod as more officers stormed in, accompanied by sergeants and medical. I stood back as they went in and addressed the situation. After a few moments, a sergeant and an officer picked the man up and loaded him on the stretcher. I know what this means. It's the last walk. He was gone. Whatever he did, whatever time he served, it was over now. As they rolled him out, I could see the man. He was in boxers and a white shirt, his face sporting a long white beard, his scalp bald with white hair poking from the sides. His eyes closed forever, and several small scars marked his face. I saw him. I just saw him. I looked to the entrance, expecting to see him standing there smiling, but no one was there. I shook my head, staggering back as they wheeled him out. My heart raced faster than ever. This couldn't be happening. I just saw him. I just heard his voice. I know they say prisoners have ghosts, but this is too real. I looked back to the entrance when I saw the man in the black suit staring at me. His clothes were dry as he walked past the sergeant and officers pushing the stretcher. I stood there struggling to break free of my panic as I went to follow them in case they needed any assistance. As I pushed forward on the way to the front door, the man spoke, causing me to stop in my tracks. Officer A. Grimm, he said, his tone flat and void of any emotion. I looked over at him, glaring my eyes at his slender figure. Whomever he was, he hated his job. I could read that by his almost morbid expression. Who are you? I asked, raising a brow far more pressing things on my mind. Tobias Flem, head of the recruiting team, he said with a professional tone. Okay, well, this is not the time, sir, I said with a firm voice. Irrelevant, he shrugged. What is? I asked, agitated. Time, he said with a slight smile, and even the expression seemed wrong. His smile was forced while his eyes screamed of sorrow. Maybe not to you, but I have better things to do than play guessing games with non-security. Have a good day, Mr. Flem, I growled, pushing past him. I implore you to stay, he said, his tone still flat. I looked back, feeling my frustration beginning to build. Look here. I don't care who you are or what department you came from. I have a job to do. We just had a man die, and I now have a mountain of paperwork. Whatever game this is, whatever meeting or any delusions you have of me staying here talking to you, 
a man I have never seen before, is over. I say again, good day, Mr. Flem, I snarled. I begin to walk off when I hear him chuckle to himself. Outraged, I snap my head back examining him, ready to fight him as if he were an inmate. Tobias sees my frustration as he puts a pale hand to his chest, offering an apology. I didn't mean to act so unprofessionally. I can just see why they chose you. I fought the urge to snap back and held my tongue. I walk back to the door, now only feet away, when the slim man in his pressed black suit spoke again. Officer Grimm. What the hell do you want? So help me? I'll knock you down and have you kissing concrete, I shouted. He did not seem bothered by my threats, as if violence were a language he was far too familiar with himself. He sighed then straightened his black tie slightly, recentering it. If you leave this pod, I will not be able to assist you. They will send someone else. However, it may take some time to do that. You will be exposed to whatever darkness lurks ahead and will face it alone. Welcome to my life, I sniped, sticking my middle finger up and storming out. I left the pod and cut the corner trying to catch up to the others. I will probably regret acting the way I did. I'm sure it'll be put on paper and slapped down in front of me. Still, it felt good. The lights are darker than before, but it's nothing new. I cannot begin to count the times the lights went out. It was horrifying at first, but now it's just another day. The corridor reeked of something like rotten eggs or sulfur. No inmates around, but I still feel the presence of something. Again, it is not uncommon, but it's enough to put me on edge. The sound of something dripping from the ceiling onto the floor ate at me. I could see a small leak as a puddle began to form and grow. I'm sure it's nothing. Perhaps some idiots popped a sprinkler head upstairs. Regardless of the source, it was dark black, almost goo-like substance dripping down slowly. I studied it for a moment when the whispers of cackles rang in my ear. I looked back towards the pod I had just left now to see the door covered in thick rust. The pod was dark. Not just a malfunction of lights, but also a sense of darkness itself. As if the place was void of light and hope. And now, whatever dark cloud engulfed it was seeping out into the hallway in which I stood. My heart began to pound like mad drums as I fought to calm myself. Balling my fists, I turned back and headed forward. I'm not going! A voice shouted with rage that could only be compared to that of a rabid animal. I look ahead, the darkness beginning to spread and thicken my eyes struggling to peer into the direction of the sound. Before I could even contemplate returning to the pod, the sound of screaming metal rang out as the door closed behind me, causing me to gasp and leap forward. You can't make me! A voice boomed with a ferocity that shook the walls itself. I stumbled back, unsure of what was ahead. I heard the sound of chains and stomping as I took a few steps backward. I could see a figure emerging from the darkness as if it was pulling itself out. It was tall wearing an old, tattered prison jumpsuit that was from another era. His hands were cuffed to his front, the cuffs digging into gray and rotting flesh as dark blood trickled down from the cuffs. His left foot was twisted as he dragged it behind him, all his force stomping his right foot down. No shoes, no socks, just grayish-blue bruised and bloody pulps for feet. The man's face was a mix between hate and fear. He appeared to have some sort of facial wound, but as he got closer, I could see it was no ordinary injury. The flesh on the right side of his face was stripped to the blood-covered bone. His right eye left a dark void of emptiness, 
darker than the area slowly swallowing us. He turned his head slowly until his one eye landed on me. I could see panic and rage set in as he snarled near, mimicking a wild dog. You want me to go back? I won't go back! I tried to rationalize what I was seeing. Had I been drugged? Had Tobias somehow managed to slip me something? Or maybe I was still in bed, and this is one of those notorious night terrors people talk about. I stumbled back, my pace becoming quicker as his growl grew. Before I knew it, I was standing in front of the now rust-covered door leading to seven buildings. It was closed shut as I battered my fist into the door, yelling for someone to open it. I could hear the chains rattle behind me getting closer. I wanted to see how far off this thing was, but fear refused to allow me to make such a notion. Instead of tears streaming down my face, I cried out and screamed, pulling at the door that refused to budge. I won't go to the chair! You can't make me! The violent voice screamed at a painful bellow. The sound of metal grinding gave me hope as a slight crack formed from the door. It hissed and roared, trying to fight me off but mustering enough strength. I succeeded and rushed into the pod. I looked back to the inmate just a few feet away. He stared at me with one eye that seemed to be crying blood. He went to step onto the pod to follow me when a rush of sour air brushed against my back and into his face. The wind that came from nowhere carried a hiss of anger with it. The man snarled at me and then turned away. You can't make me! He grumbled, sounding almost defeated as he shuffled away. No doubt to look for another victim. I was so relieved to have escaped that I had not noticed what I had run into. The pod was dark and all the cells were open. However... No one was outside of their cells. It seemed empty, but I could hear soft moans and cries for help. The once-polished floors were now covered in the filth of all nature. The tables were covered with thin papers. The sour breeze mysteriously flowed about the pod, brought a few up and sent them to me. Landing a few feet ahead, I could see the pages ripped from a Bible, my eyes struggling to catch the highlighted words on the tattered pages. Refusing to step back outside the pod, I decided to explore further. I knew there was a back hallway I could use to escape. However, I needed to be sure that I was in no danger before I put my back on anyone or anything. I walked over to one of the cells and I could feel my body tense up. Inside was a figure covered in bed sheets lying still on the bed. Normally, that would be scary enough. But it was unnerving at best after what I just saw. Still, I could make out puddles of blood oozing out from under the bed as soft moans caused the sheets to rise slightly and fall around where the mouth would be. A voice hissed at me from behind. I snapped my head back to see nothing more than shadows pressing against the walls. Mommy? A frightened voice asked from somewhere behind me. Turning my head to the left, I could see a young man in his late 20s with his head down, shuffling toward a table. He had black hair that fell to his shoulders, and wore a modern outfit. I didn't mean to do it, Molly. He repeated, his eyes focused on the floor as he walked closer to the table. I did not make a sound, though I was certain he could hear my heart beating. I was terrified, frozen in my tracks as I watched this man walk to the table. He pressed a hand on one of the sheets of paper before sobbing. I felt bad for him. Even with this madness, I could not help but feel his pain like it was seeping from his skin itself and floating about in the air. 
I took a step forward wanting to offer help, but his sobbing turned into a dark, twisted cackle as my foot hit the ground. Are you my new mommy? He asked, keeping his head low. I didn't dare respond. My heart felt like it would die from exhaustion. My last mommy didn't make it. She was mean to me, so I was mean to her. He said, still laughing. He snapped his head up in a fast motion to look at me. As he did, I could see his throat had been slashed wide open. Black blood dripped slowly from the wound, reminding me of the puddle in the hallway. His eyes were dark as the night itself, and a twisted smile spread across his face. I need a new mommy. He smiled, crumbling the sheets of paper in his hand before staggering over. Howells broke free from the cells, accompanied by the sounds of thrashing. I peered into them to see bodies, hanging, from stained and deteriorated bedsheets flailing about as if trying to free themselves. Their ghostly white bodies swing side to side as their black eyes open, their mouths gaping wide as they let out wails of fear and rage. As they wiggle about, I notice one in a cell managed to snap the bedsheet that kept him suspended in the air, wrapped around a clearly broken neck. His body fell to the floor with a loud thud. He squirmed about the floor, thrashing like a suffering worm. They can't join us. The man cooed, looking over at them before turning his dark eyes on me. Don't worry, Mommy. You're safe with me. He said with a sinister tone. I stumbled back, fighting for words as a figure emerged from the top tier. She's mine, Green. Go sob in your cell, you blubbering child. A dark, demonic voice bellowed. The man looked over at me, rubbing the gaping wound on his neck. His smile had transformed into a face of fear. He did not argue with the new entity as he shuffled away, groaning to himself. I wanted to thank my apparent savior, but something was wrong. His presence was the darkest I have felt so far. As impossible as that is to believe. His face was hidden in the shadows as he stood above the pod, eyeing me. Aren't you going to thank me? The man asked as he made his way to the stairs heading down. I could make out his appearance now. He was tall, sporting a clean-shaven face and buzz cut. His eyes were not black, but blue, yet still seemed darker than the others. He wore an old jumpsuit, but had no apparent injuries like the others. Should I? I asked, hoping to sound tough, praying he could not see that I was shaking like an infant in the snow. He smiled, coming down the last step. You remind me of this one girl I knew. She had a mouth on her, too. Tasted like cherries. He sneered. So that's it, then. You're going to try and eat me, I say, doing my best to keep my composure. Not so fast, baby girl. Why rush something so sweet? You might be in uniform, but... You're in my house now. He said sadistically as his smile widened. Don't fool yourself. You want me? You are going to earn it. I growled, feeling my strength return. He laughed as he approached, practically towering over me. He began walking in circles around my body, no doubt studying me. I've butchered entire families, tortured the husbands and fathers, ate the women and children. I roamed these halls long before you idiotically signed up for this job. 
I've assaulted officers, sergeants, and captains. No one is safe when I step into a room. You have no idea the evil that seeps from my very essence. He said in his dark, deep, and somehow smooth voice. The way he spoke. His voice sounding like how you would imagine the devil would speak as he toyed with the damned souls of hell. I looked around to see bodies begin to emerge from cells. All twisted and bloody, pale and full of sorrow and pain. They watched, daring not to step a foot out of their rooms. In no doubt, fear of this one inmate. So you think you're bad? I've met dozens of pricks like you. I wasn't trying to make him angry. But I learned long ago that if you show fear, you're already done. Whatever nightmare this was, I was begging to wake up. He stopped circling me like a vulture and began to snicker. <laughs> you're cute. I think I'll keep you like a pet at first. Make you hate me, then love me. And finally, I'll feast on your soul like a full course meal. I watched his teeth transform into sharp, jagged fangs, and his eyes grew red as he approached me. Mommy. A familiar voice whimpered. I looked over for a second to see inmate Green staggering back out of his cell, leaving a trickling trail of black blood behind him. The man growled in what appeared to be several dark collective voices as he walked over towards Green, who appeared to have no clue what was going on, as if he had already forgotten. I took my opportunity and darted towards the back door of the pod. Using all my strength, I began pulling at it, begging it to open. I could hear inmates screaming out, some in pain, others in hate, as they watched me trying to escape. But none braved the pod while the other inmate walked out. The door gave way as I looked back to see Green being picked up by his already gashed throat by the other inmate. The inmate snarled and threw Green's body back into the wall. Green began sobbing again, still crying out for his mother as the other inmates stood on top of him, wailing his fist and sending dark blood splattering about the pod. I almost wanted to help, but knew no one here was a friend. I stepped into the back hallway to see the concrete floor replaced with a river of blood. Figures were moving about as if swimming beneath it, screams echoing down the long corridor. Voices whistled through the air. Join us. Join us. I shook my head fighting back tears as I came face to face with the conclusion that I was trapped. I could hear screaming from the far back as sparks seemed to escape from the walls. Then it occurred to me this was the way to death row back in the day. Seven buildings housed the inmates to die. Once their time was up, they'd be escorted from here to the smaller section and wait to be put in the chair. This led to death and nothing else. <laughs> Leaving me already? A voice chuckled from behind me. I turned back to see the inmate smiling, covered in black blood. Looking over, I could see a pile of flesh that had been ripped to ribbons, and I knew. That's what was left of Green. I hate when they try to spoil my dinner. The inmate beamed with sadistic joy. He reached out, and before I could even try to move, he had me by my throat. Laughing, he licked his blood-covered lips and carried me over to the center of the pod before throwing me down. My head smacked on the cold concrete as I felt the daze take over. My head spun as my eyes fought to stay focused on the inmate strutting over like a peacock. I love a woman in uniform, he said standing over me, 
Screw yourself, I spat, knowing this was where I died, and finding peace in the fact that I didn't beg. If nothing else, remember that I never begged. I watched as he leaned over, smiling at me, exposing his sharp, jagged teeth, his red eyes fixated on me as he rubbed his hands together in delight. Hush now, princess. It's dinner time. And you look so tasty. He added, running his tongue along his lips and then teeth. Convict Kane! A voice boomed like thunder itself. The two of us looked over to see a new figure walking into the pod. He was tall, wide around the shoulders, with a trimmed beard and a bald scalp. He appeared young, and yet had an authority about him that one could only achieve after a lifetime. He was neatly dressed and had sergeant bars on his collar. The uniform was older and outdated, but he appeared to be somehow brand new. You've been avoiding me. The man continued approaching the two of us. Kane stumbled back, his teeth returning to normal. Red faded from his eyes and was replaced with genuine fear. You can't take me, he said, staggering back. Kane looked around the pod to see the other inmates flee into the corners of their cells, shutting the doors behind them. That's where you're wrong, Kane, the man said, still walking forward. He wasn't as tall as Kane, yet he somehow towered over him. The man raised his right hand and snapped his fingers. I watched in disbelief as barbed wire erupted from the concrete, writhing like angry snakes. Kane let out a scream and turned to flee as the wire reached out like the hands of the dead wrapping around his feet. The blades dug into his flesh as he screamed in agony. The wire wrapped around his entire body, only stopping at the neck. His clothes were now drenched in his own blood as he screamed in fear, intertwined with pain. I've been saving a cell for you. You'll find yourself at home in my building. The man said, walking over to Kane's bleeding body wrapped tightly in barbed wire. He reached down, grabbed the man by a shirt collar, and started dragging him away. Fire erupted into the pot a few feet from us. I crawled back, startled when I realized it wasn't spreading. Instead, it was contained and seemed to be a doorway of sorts. You can't do this! This is my house! Kane screamed as the man effortlessly pulled him away toward the flames. Leaving a fresh trail of blood behind him, I listened to Kane beg and plead with this new figure. How could Kane transform from so much wrath to now so much fear? I was certain there would be tears if I could see his twisted eyes. Wrong! The man yelled. This is my house, and you are being evicted. He added as he threw Kane into the fire. I watched in disbelief as the man turned his attention to me. I could hear his screams as they engulfed him. I expected it to swallow him whole, leaving nothing but charred bones. But instead, it was like he just simply vanished. Now then, you are the reason Tobias sent me. Why couldn't you just listen to him? He asked, frowning at me. What? I asked, confused, my head practically spinning. Get up. We need to have a chat. He sighed, reaching down and helping me to my feet. We walked over towards the back door when I stumbled back. Don't worry. You'll get the hang of this soon. He said in a surprisingly calm voice. He stepped into the back hallway looking at me as I stood there, afraid to peer around the corner. Come on, then. He said, extending a hand. How did... how did you make it go away? I stepped inside, expecting to fall into the pool of blood, 
when I noticed it had all disappeared and instead was now a clean hallway. It appeared more normal than anything I had encountered thus far. The man shrugged, walking ahead. I didn't make them. They just know who I am and chose not to confront me. And you are who, exactly? I asked, confused, following him down the corridor. Sergeant Dustin Miller, he replied. What the hell is going on? I asked, confused, my brain unable to process any of the madness that unfolded. He did not respond as he made our way down the corridor. We stopped at a dilapidated office with scattered papers, shattered windows, and desks covered in dust and filth. This will do, he said, stepping inside. I stood in front of the door momentarily, watching him pull two chairs, wiping the dust from them. He took a seat and motioned me to the other chair. I walked over and sat down, unsure about everything but ready for some type of answer to this insanity. Now then, Susan Flame will give you the full orientation process, but I am here to handle the basics and conduct your transfer. Consider this almost like an interview. My transfer? What the hell are you talking about? Who are you? What is this? What is going on? I yelled, demanding an explanation. Sergeant Miller sighed, placing his hands in his lap. It's never easy. I, for one, had the orientation process three times so far. Luckily, making sergeant. I have no more delusions for my state of being. He said with a proud smile as if I should congratulate him. If you don't start making sense, I'm going to jump up and beat you senseless with whatever is closest to me, I growl. He smirked, nodding. Officer A. Grimm served three years at Oakwood Correctional Center and has a reputation for being aggressive. I personally requested you be placed in my building. How do you know me? I asked, nearly jumping up in my chair. Before he could respond, there was a knock at the door. I looked over surprised as a blonde-haired woman in a red dress suit walked in. Her hair was cut short, her blood-red tie straightened, overlapping a pressed white shirt. This is Susan Flame from Human Resources. She will be handling your orientation, Sergeant Miller said. The two nodded politely as she took a seat only before wiping away any dust from the chair. Right. I prefer to do this in our own institution, but Tobias informed me that you were rather hostile. She said with a soft yet firm voice. What is going on here? I asked, my anger getting the best of me. The two looked at one another before Susan answered my question. We are beginning the orientation process. You are Officer Alice Grimm, age 24, correct? Yes, but what is this orientation process? What is going on with Oakwood? Why are there monsters running about? Where is everyone that I know? I scream. Dead Rock Correctional Center is recruiting you based on the fact you meet the criteria. She said with a smile as if this was good news. As if this was supposed to make any type of sense to me. What is Dead Rock? What criteria and what is going on? I asked, jumping up from my chair. Officer Grimm, this will be an unpleasant conversation at best. Please sit down and allow us to explain your situation. Sergeant Miller said. I looked over at him appalled but complied nonetheless. At 4.53 a.m., you were almost at work when a large branch fell into the road and caused you to swerve to the right, 
Susan Flame said, looking over at a small notepad in her hand. How did you know about that? I asked, confused. You believe you avoided any type of collision and went to work as you normally would. She continued. I did just that, I yelled, getting frustrated by whatever games they were playing. Both shook their heads in unison as she finished talking. You ran into the tree and died upon impact. At 5.35 a.m., the local sheriff's department discovered your body, but it was far too late to bring you back. Instead, they notified Oakwood of your departure, who then notified your family. Who the hell do you think you are? Making some sick joke like that. I should wring your neck right now, I roar, jumping up once again and stepping over when Sergeant Miller speaks, causing me to halt in my tracks. Do you actually remember being shaken down this morning? He asked, looking at me calmly. What? I asked, thinking back to when I first came in. Did anyone actually shake you down? Search your things? Did anyone speak to you? Acknowledge your presence? They were busy. He shook his head, letting out a sigh. Think back, Officer Grimm. When you walked into the watch office, what did you hear? Nothing! No one was in there! I yelled back. I was crying now. I didn't want to, but I felt the tears streaming down my face. You are hiding it. You refused to address the truth. When you walked in, you heard your captain on the phone with the police department discussing your death. He hadn't notified anyone at the time, but you heard him. They placed another officer in your place, and life went on for others. It is sad, but that is what we sign up for. We are here to do a job. But when we die, we are replaced easier than we would like. Sergeant Miller said as I could pick up the sadness in his voice. I wanted to argue, but for some reason, I could hear it just as I hear him now. My captain speaking with the police and hearing him say my name. Adjusting the schedule and even saying a soft prayer for my soul. How did this happen? Where am I? As pieces seemed to work together in my jumbled brain... I felt my heart sink deeper than I could ever imagine. My mouth opened in despair, and my eyes were heavy with sorrow. I looked over at Sergeant Miller. I'm dead, I croaked. The two nod as I plopped down in my chair. You never truly had any solid faith. Therefore, you didn't get to go through the Golden Gates just yet. Sergeant Miller said. Just yet? What does that mean? I asked, trying to stop the tears from falling from my eyes and trickling down my cheeks. It means, once you've done your time at Dead Rock, you get a chance to enter heaven. Sergeant Miller has done 50 years. He just made Sergeant and is on his way up. He too had difficulties accepting his passing, but now he's grown quite acclimated to his position and purpose at Dead Rock. Susan said, giving Sergeant Miller a slight nod and a smile. Captain Mass oversees us for now. He is good. And we will ensure you are supported throughout your new transfer to Dead Rock. Sergeant Miller said, smiling at me. What is Dead Rock? I asked, feeling weak and defeated. Dead Rock Correctional Center houses the souls of hell, those that are damned, and is staffed by correctional officers who lacked in areas of faith, who have all been given a chance to redeem themselves and work towards, shall I say, 
salvation, Susan Flame said. I shake my head unable to process any of this. What about what I saw? Kane and the others, I mumble. Every prison has its ghosts. Oakwood carries many twisted souls who refuse to take their last walk to judgment. Kane and so many others you haven't seen stuck around avoiding us. The longer they stay, the more they fall apart, and if they remain too long, they become just shadows and whispers. Kane, who was more comfortable in his dark nature, fed off the torment of other damned souls and provided him the strength to remain somewhat in his true form. He is a rare case. Not everyone decides to fight it. You encountered an inmate today on his last walk. Sergeant Miller said, as if this was all normal. He died? I asked stupidly, already knowing the answer. In his sleep, luckily for him. He made peace and was accepted. Most are not. He added. And Kane? I asked, wiping my tears from my eyes. Now an inmate at Dead Rock, where we will ensure his stay. Sergeant Miller said. So, I'm dead then, I asked, looking up at the two. Unfortunately, but you will find things are not as bad, Susan said. How can you say that, I asked, fighting the urge not to cry again. Because you're still given a chance for redemption. All you have to do is work for us, Susan said, pulling a contract from a folder by her side and handing it over to me. It was written in gold ink and appeared like a normal job contract. Sign the dotted line and you will become a correctional officer at the prison of the damned. (laughs) I thought about it. This madness. This harsh truth. I wanted to argue with them, say they were lying. But I knew they weren't. This was my life now. This was who I was. The question is, who was I going to be? I looked up as Sergeant Miller offered me a gold and silver pen. I took it and I couldn't help but smile. I pressed the pen to the paper and looked up at the two, giving them an honest, ironic grin before saying, This is twice now I've sold my soul to a prison. I hope you enjoyed The Transfer, as written by Alan McDaniels and voiced by Danielle Hewitt, Drew Blood, Nick Goroff, Trevor Rines, Melissa Medina, and myself. You can catch the incomparable Drew Blood Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern, where he hosts his very own show called Drew Blood's Dark Tales, now in its third season. Trevor Rines... Quote, sounds like a dragon, like a landslide, like a force of nature, unquote, according to one evil, idle fan. A Toronto-based voice actor since 2005, his low, rumbling voice has been heard on TV, radio, film, documentaries, audio dramas, podcasts, old-time radio play reenactments, and narrating on stage with orchestras. In under a year, he performed in all of Shakespeare's plays. 
A musician who studied and played every instrument of the orchestra, he composes music for live theater productions and recently released an album of his notorious renaissance group, The Gemsman, playing an extinct instrument which you've never heard of. Voice actress Melissa Medina's work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as her website, hearmelissa.com. That's H-E-A-R-M-E-L-I-S-S-A dot com. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author Elliot Olson and is performed by Nick Goroff. In it, an old man tells a story about the origin of Christmas tree ornaments, those red balls. After explaining his family history, he tells about a strange tradition they celebrate every 30 years called Red Yule. Ultimately, he witnesses the death of his grandparents as they undergo a strange and twisted transformation that will haunt him for the rest of his life. When the truth of his family's history is revealed, he is so frightened that he may go over the edge. Now. Without further ado, I present to you, Red Yule. I'm sure you have heard all the stories about the Christmas tree. It once originated back in ancient Scandinavia, when the Vikings cut down a big spruce tree every winter. This was to celebrate Yule during the winter solstice. They displayed them in their long mead halls during festivities in the winter, decorating them with long-forgotten pagan symbols in the workshop of their ancient Norse gods. It is believed that the ornaments traditionally used to decorate trees, the red and gold balls, came from Germany in the Middle Ages. They decorated their Christmas trees with apples and balls of glass at that time. This is still true, but I must tell you about what I now believe is the natural origin of this tradition. My family has lived in the northern part of Norway for generations. We have also always owned this old rustic mansion close to the border of Sweden. It's located close to some of the area's most prominent mountains, and a thick spruce forest surrounds it. The estate has been in our family for generations. There is no written record of the date it was built, but we speculate that the inner parts are at least 500 years old. Around the surrounding forest, there are various ancient decaying ruins and runestones. There is not much to say about the ruins. They are primarily old, collapsed stone buildings with no roofs. Most of them are not even standing anymore. We've invited archaeologists from the University of Oslo, and they date most of the fallen buildings to be around 1,300 to 1,000 years old. They have oddly never found any skeletons or corpses around the ruins, there are a few rock-covered graves, but they are all empty. They explain that people back then in this area used to burn their relatives and scatter their ashes. Some runestones have been found around the estate, and unfortunately, only a few of them have been properly translated. 
The translatable few of them mostly say mundane things like, Einar, son of Harald, raises this stone to honor his dead father, and I raise this rock in memory of my brother Leif. There are three large ominous stones placed in the middle of the forest that gave me a creepy feeling when I walked by the area as a child. They have never been adequately translated, since the runes etched into them are so faded that they barely make any sense reading them. Only a few sentences are even remotely readable, and what has been translated reads, Goddess Hela, Watcher of Life and Death, followed by, Breathe your life into us, all mother. And it just ends with, Black Goat. This stone formation looks archaic, and the high treetops of this forest make sure daylight never hits the dark, moss-covered rocks. The area around this place is filled with giant spruces, and the bark of these trees has an almost skin-like texture that grows unusually thick and eventually cracks. The branches look elongated and crooked. Every bend of the tree has a bone-like appearance, and the surface is strangely warm to the touch. It is warm enough to melt the snow that falls on the trees and make melted circles on the ground around them. My grandfather had been the owner of this estate and its surrounding land for as long as I could remember. We were told growing up that we always had this family tradition that is almost as old as our family. Every thirty years we celebrate Christmas together in the old house. I will never forget my first Christmas celebration there. We called it Red Yule. I was only eleven years old at the time, and my younger sister had just turned seven two months ago. The first bit of snow had just hit the countryside about two weeks before the coming winter solstice, which is on the 21st and not the 25th, by the way. My parents had spent their first week at this place. They decorated all the windows with hanging stars and the usual small connected lights that go around the outside of the house. My grandparents were still alive back then, and I remember my old grandmother in her 80s baking Christmas cookies building gingerbread houses with my sister and me. She helped us put icing around all the corners of the gingerbread house and filled the roof with chocolates. We were so happy back then when everyone was together. Grandpa told us stories from the Viking times about how the great thunder god got his hammer what they thought would happen when the world eventually ends, and why the sun and moon go up and down. He also told us stories about the resilient trees that show their green liveliness in the dead of cold and ruthless winters. This was the first time that we heard about Red Yule. Grandpa told my sister and me about it one evening. Our family has always taken care of these trees. And one night, before the winter solstice, we take out two plants that we have grown ourselves for years, then put them by the fireplace and watch them grow big together. 
It would be best if you kids stayed in your rooms that night. If you hear screams, don't be alarmed. It is the Christmas spirit that comes to bless the young trees and give them a long, everlasting life together. His voice was so cracked and lifeless at the time, there was a certain fear in his voice that never left. It smelled like he was drinking a lot before that red yule. He didn't feel like he was completely present at times, and he had this unnerving stare into empty space, accompanied by shivering to his breath, especially when he thought that he was alone. It was the day before Red Yule, on the 20th of December. My sister and I were playing by the fireplace when Grandmother was knitting, and she looked abnormally stressed out. Usually, she was a very relaxed and loving person, but the Yule preparations were getting on her nerves. Or maybe it was the fact that my sister and I kept asking about the Christmas trees, and when we would get to see them, and how big they were, and how many years they had grown. Eventually, she even became spiteful towards us. I could hear her mumbling that this wasn't even her choice, and she didn't know about it at the time. She started getting angry at the most minuscule of things, like making any loud noise in her presence. And when we started laughing loudly together, she sometimes just dropped her things and walked away. The entire day passed, and we saw no traces of those trees. I asked my parents, too, but they were busy preparing the Christmas food for tomorrow, and told me not to overthink it and see them in the morning. I started thinking, they just got too tired to go out and chop them down, or maybe they had forgotten all about it. I was feeling a bit drained that night. Maybe I was getting bored being out in the country with nothing to do. I can vaguely remember waking up alone in the middle of the night as I thought I heard someone scream down the stairs. I honestly might have just dreamt most of what followed that night, or made it up as I thought about it while growing up. I was too afraid that my sister would panic from the screaming, so I didn't wake her up that night. The door was on a jar, and I took the stairs down towards the living room. There was a reddish glow from the fireplace that lit up the room. There were still no trees standing there. The only eye-catching thing I could see was my grandparents. They were sitting, dressed in their morning robes, on their knees, holding hands. Was this the Christmas spirit that Grandpa had talked about? Grandpa was mumbling something in a rough tone, as if he was having an angry conversation with Grandmother. First, I thought they were making a prayer of some kind, and after a while, I was worried that Grandma hurt herself on something, because I could see blood dripping down from her hands to the floor. At this point, I felt like I must be dreaming. After a few seconds, Grandpa started screaming out of nowhere. It just sounded like complete nonsense, and every word was incomprehensible. Then he began coughing, and it sounded like he couldn't breathe. I could hear this high-pitched wheezing sound from the top of his lungs. 
Grandma started doing this as well soon after him, and she fell to the ground with a loud thud. Shortly after that, I could only hear guttural sounds from both of them. They were now vomiting red and black goo, and I just stood there helpless. I tried running up to them, but this freaked me out too much. I have never been this afraid in my entire life. My entire body turned ice cold, and I could do nothing but observe what played out in front of me that night. With heavy tears falling down my cheeks, I stared so hard I stopped breathing. I saw Grandpa fall to the ground, and now both of their bodies started contorting and twisting on the living room floor as they started bleeding from all their orifices. They vomited chunks of coagulated blood, and I think even parts of their insides were coughed up. My eyes were locked open, staring at what once was my grandparents' limbs bending in strange ways. I was frozen in pure horror as their bodies still kept making detestable sounds. Their voices were moaning and gurgling. It looked like something was growing out from their abdomen. Hundreds of skinny and long reddish branches started growing out of their guts, and two thin plants started forming out of their bodies. Blood started to pulsate out as they grew with rapid speed. At this point, I think they were alive because I remember Grandma's deafening screams. It was the sound of someone dying in utterly overwhelming pain. It almost completely covered up the shivering, panting, and coughing from Grandpa before he passed. It only lasted a few seconds before it abruptly ended. Then, roots started to grow over and into their twisting corpses and attached themselves everywhere around and inside of them. The plants started to devour their innards, and their bodies now started to become empty as the trees grew into them like parts made out of their skin. My grandparents' inner parts were liquefied and completely emptied while the stems, in a twisting manner, grew taller and broader. It seemed like they even fed from their bones, because it looked like they were emptied entirely afterward. I must have fainted after seeing this, because all I remember is waking up in my bed drenched in sweat. I looked around the room in a panic, and all I saw was my sweet sister still sleeping in her bed. Still to this day, it's hard for me to tell if it was a dream or not. I remember that the morning after this, the two Christmas trees had grown long and tall and stood proudly in the living room by an extinguished fireplace. Their bark was now deeply cracked, hellish, and resembled skin. The branches were contorted and limb-like. The green needles were now bent in strange configurations and had grown out hair-like. What initially looked like parts of skin under the trees now stretched up along the stem and twisted diagonally around the tree. If you inspected them closely, you could barely see something resembling a face. 
for some weird reason, the spruces now also carried fruit. The fruits were very thick and shaped like apples and had a dark cinnabar color with a meaty looking texture with no skin. They were dripping some strange yellow slimy gunk down on the wooden floor and made the living room smell like a slaughterhouse full of mold. What horrified me the most, though, was not the horrifying view of my dead great-grandparents or this disgusting fruit. It was that my father made me and my sister eat these fruits after we had woken up that day. We had barely just woken up that morning and Dad called us to go downstairs. Our mom stood in the doorway to the living room and just stared while my sister and I were crying. Dad was holding us down and forcing the meaty fruits down our throats. Of course, I understood it was something about those damn trees, but never would I have guessed what he was about to tell us and do to us in my wildest imagination. The fruits made my stomach turn. They tasted like salty blood and had a strong stinging sensation as I chewed them. As I bit down on the first one, I was expecting a crunchy apple-like texture. But it was like biting into a warm, raw egg. The inner liquid's parts burned my throat as it went down, and I started to lose my voice. I cried out, but to no avail. My sister could barely keep it down and started to gag on the fruit, but she didn't dare to puke. My vision briefly blurred, and my ears started to ring, although I could still feel my body inside the living room. I could hear Grandma's voice again, and it felt like a thousand screams that were being choked out and eventually silenced. I could also hear what I thought were the final thoughts of my grandfather, and he was so happy not to have to worry about this moment anymore. It was a flowing mess of flashbacks and vivid, undistorted memories from my childhood that I was way too young to be able to remember that were seen from someone else's body. There is nothing as strange as feeling how it feels to hold yourself as a baby. This roller coaster of lucid visions combined the disgusting taste of the fruits made me so nauseous that I could do nothing else except barely sit up. After a while, when we somewhat calmed down and stopped crying, Dad spoke to us about what happened. And he said, One day, you will understand, kids. When you get older, you will also start to contemplate the end of your lives when your mortal bodies begin reaching the end of their use. Your body and mind will age, get old, and then usually pain and discomfort start to set in. Eventually, you usually lose everything. Your mind will, at some point, become an empty husk with no past or future, no memories or reference left to center you back into this world, only mindless existence with nothing there followed by certain death. But at that point, you are basically dead already. What you just ate was the red yule fruit and I just gave you and your sister a second chance to keep living after this brief and limited human experience has ended. 
The seeds within this fruit will take almost 60 years to cultivate inside of you fully, and will most likely spread into your husbands and wives as well, after which you will evolve together into the next stage of our collective existence. For centuries, our relatives have accumulated quite an extensive collection of life stories and lucid memories. Every thirty years, the assortment grows a little every time, and all you have to give up for this gift is the very last years of suffering for the prize of being able to witness and relive centuries of lives lived. Imagine being able to live out an almost infinite amount of past lives, and also sharing everything you've witnessed with the rest of us to experience as well. This is what is so special about our family. We will always be there together with each other. I'm sorry I had to do this to you, but understand that I will eventually live through all of this pain and discomfort you just experienced as well. So, in a way, we are already even. Father's words were strangely soothing to me at the moment. It calmed me a bit, considering the circumstances. I didn't understand a word he was saying. I was hearing his familiar voice speaking nonsense to me, and everything just seemed to make perfect sense and made me stop thinking about how utterly insane this situation was in reality. My mom was still standing in the doorway listening to the same speech with lifeless emotion on her face, except for a faint, fake smile on her face. It felt to me like she was powerless to do anything about this, and just accepted this as our fate. She had wandered off to get dressed for the snow outside while Dad was talking to us, and she was standing there, dressed with a thick winter coat and holding two shovels in her hands. After all, was said and done. They made us walk for hours into the forest, dragging both of the two repulsive trees behind us on a sled. We ventured past the ominous stone formation, far into the dark woodlands, and ended up where the warm hellish pines grew tall, and we planted what was left of our grandparents into the frigid and icy snow-covered ground. It took a very long time since the frost on the ground was so deep. Dad and I took turns digging out chunks of frozen soil for the hole. Then my mom and sister planted the damn things. We walked home afterwards in complete silence, and by that point, it was almost light outside. Those horrid and sadistic images I described have troubled me greatly for many years. I will never forget that vile taste in my mouth and the dreadful thoughts of never being able to leave this world still consumes me. I've been dreading the day that I'm being animated into one of those nasty things for decades. I haven't spoken to anyone about this since my parents went through their transformations together 30 years ago. My last dying wish is to inform you about the truth about this age-old Christmas tradition, and I'm leaving this as a warning for anyone reading my story. I've been feeling one of those awful things move inside of me for a couple of days now. I can only describe it 
There's a rough scraping sensation, followed by a sharp, piercing pain. Yesterday, I went in for a full-body checkup, but they told me there was nothing wrong with me physically. They suggested it might be constipation or food poisoning, and that I should call them again if symptoms get any worse. Just this week, my wife started complaining about a stinging sensation in her abdomen as we were trying to sleep. I know this isn't just a coincidence, and there is no way I'm just going to let this happen to us. I know what you think. It is unfair and cruel toward my family, and I should have told my wife a long time ago. But I honestly don't think she would have believed me. I just wanted to forget all about it all, and live everyday life. But now I know it's impossible. There is just over a week until the next winter solstice. And I'm not going to go through with the celebrations. My sister, her children, and the rest of my family expect me and my wife to host the next Red Yule together, but I refuse. I've made arrangements for my wife and me to pass tomorrow. Despite all of this, I love my wife and children with all my heart. I sent the children away to be with some of my close friends this year, so I desperately hope they don't have to live through what I have endured. As charming and innocent as those red balls on your Christmas tree may seem, I know of their true evil. If you ever happen to stumble upon snowless pines in the middle of northern winters, and in the unlikely event that they are carrying fruits, stay away and forget that you ever saw them. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed Red Yule, as written by Elliot Olson and performed by Nick Goroff. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. As for me, I'll be right here next week. Now, our weekly Descent into the Depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week, when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, Get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.